You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last nine years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? You know, I was just thinking when you were saying during that intro, the occasionally wonderful part that you've been adding for a while. Yeah. Was this weekend one of those occasionally wonderful moments? I mean, I got to be honest, I'm pretty hyped, man. I yeah. feel as hyped as I have felt about MMA in a long time. And not necessarily just because of UFC 257, although that was that was awesome. But like three events into 2021, I feel like it's all coming up Dundas over here, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is something nice about it being one of those big fight weekends like we've talked about where the whole world seems like it's remembering that this MMA thing is happening. Yeah. Normally, don't give a shit. Something happens, big Conor McGregor event, everybody tunes their eyes back over in our direction. And there's a part of you as a longtime MMA fan that goes, hey, guys, let's not fuck this up. (laughs) There are plenty of ways that we can fuck it up. We have in the past fucked it up in myriad ways. This time, everybody's paying attention. Let's see if we can't put our best foot forward. And then we kind of do. We get ourselves a pretty solid event. Uh, Not without some very MMA-ish hiccups here and there. But co-main event and main event deliver some memorable moments, some feel-good moments even. And uh, you come away feeling like, all right, maybe we're we're through the darkness and there's a break in the clouds ahead. Yeah, there's a little bit of momentum going right now. You had Holloway and, and Cater had a great fight on ABC to open up the year. Then you had uh, Michael Chiesa and Neil Magny, which was strictly for the heads. But like, if you are a big mixed martial arts fan, I think that was a, a pretty good fight too. And then you got... Michael Chandler versus Dan Hooker and Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor. And as you mentioned, an event with a legit big fight feel. And it just kind of feels like this is this is what it should feel like, man. This is this is how it should be. And we've got a little momentum here headed into the new year. And on top of that, the UFC went ahead and solidified its upcoming schedule. And frankly, there's a lot more fun stuff coming up. Uh, just if you take a, a slightly curated approach to what we've got coming up over the next couple months. You've got UFC 258, which is Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns on, on February 13th. You got Dominic Reyes versus Jiri Prochazka on February 27th. Uh, UFC 259, which is maybe the next kind of big ticket item, which has the style bender. Uh, Israel Adesanya moving up to light heavyweight to fight the legendary Polish power of Jan Blachowicz on March 6th. Then you got Edwards versus Chemaev knock on wood, back on the schedule to go down March 13th. And then just, I guess, confirmed over the weekend or late last week, the heavyweight title rematch on the books. Now Stipe Miocic versus uh, Big big Fran, Big Francis Ngannou on March 27th. So I don't want to do the thing where we set ourselves up for a big fall. Because as you know, these things can fall through. Many things can happen. But we've had three good events to start 2021 after a time where it felt like we dearly needed something good to happen. And uh, we've got we've got a little bit momentum rolling here into February and March. 
And we have some fun stuff to talk about this week because uh, shakeups, you might say. Shakeups in the landscape. Indeed. indeed. Shakeups abound. Shakeups abound. You're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. But make no mistake, Ben Folks and I are here all week. Don't forget to tip your bartender over at the Co Main Event Podcast Patreon page. We're over there dropping not one, not two, but typically three additional podcasts every single week just for the beloved patrons of the CME. That includes the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday, where all topics are welcome and absolutely anything can happen, plus the Friday Power Hour podcast, where we typically take a deep dive into the most compelling MMA topic of the week, as well as unleash the most powerful force in all of fight sports, the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour, Power Rankings, it rolls off the tongue. It is both exhilarating and a little bit scary to behold. But that's not all. For the absolute shit-eating wild persons out there who want to support the podcast at the very highest level, we've got our weekly movie club podcasts. This week, we're closing out Martial Arts Movie Month with a viewing of the best MMA movie ever made, 2011's Warrior starring Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton. So if you want to listen to us essentially break down Nick Nolte graduating to that point in an actor's career we can when he can basically just play himself, you know what to do. Go ahead and join the team over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We got three different tiers of patronage you can choose from. Remember, uh, it's that support that keeps this podcast ad-free and out of the clutches of the corporate fat cats who would seek to fetter the discourse we couldn't do this without the patrons, so please check us out over at patreon.com slash co-main event. You remember the work Nick Nolte's doing in Warrior? Yeah, I remember. Gravelly. Gravelly yeah. AF is yeah. how I would describe Nick Nolte's whole acting timber going into the... Um, I mean, how how sad are you, though, that we missed an opportunity to... To watch Here Comes the Boom, because the voting was tight there for a little bit. I know that you had your hopes up for a Kevin James joint. Now you gotta you gotta kinda refocus to get out of the Here Comes the Boom mode and into the Warrior mode. Uh I guess we should, we're kinda jumping the gun here because voting has not officially concluded. It's still underway over at the Patreon page, but at this moment, uh Warrior holds a fifty-six percent to forty-four percent advantage over Here Comes the Boom. Uh, even though there is some vocal support for "Here Comes the Boom" in the uh, in the comments, yeah, there. but th- that vocal support is mainly like uh, mean spiritedness toward us. That's right. People really people are paying for the privilege of forcing us to watch "Here Comes the Boom," according to some of the patrons over there in the in the comments of that particular poll. Yeah, that's not people who genuinely themselves want to watch "Here Comes the Boom" for the most part. It's that they. They want to force us to watch it. And remember, if you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you go out and buy my newest novel, The Blaze, wherever fine books are sold. Publishers Weekly called it an exceptional thriller, an insightful look at a former soldier's attempts to re-enter civilian life elevates this poignant, action-packed story. So go out and grab The Blaze today. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you enjoy it, please go leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book 
So do me a favor, buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. We have music this week from CME listener and beloved patron Doug Ty, a.k.a. Spider Fighting. He describes his music as instrumental beat music that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. I think it's pretty cool. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash spiderfighting. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one, the big payback indeed. Dustin Poirier flattens Conor McGregor. And I don't know, man, maybe it's time to stop underestimating this dude. And in round number two, we hold some truths to be self-evident about Conor McGregor at this point. We'll tell you what they are during the second round of the show. And in round number three, some of y'all slept on Michael Chandler, and then he went out there and smoked Dan Hooker in two minutes and 30 seconds. What role should Chandler, Poirier, McGregor, and Chucky Olives all play in a lightweight division that looks like it will soldier on without Habib Nurmagomedov? All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Richard Irwin Rude, who writes, What's up, sweat hogs? So right away, Ben, you can see former professional wrestler Rick Rude checking in from beyond the grave. Kind of giving himself away there with the sweat hogs line. I don't know if you two had any trouble watching the fights, but half my friends and everyone I saw on Twitter, including J.J. Watt, Kevin Lee, and Kelvin Gastelum, were having issues with ESPN+, which is crazy because some others who found, quote-unquote, more creative ways to watch the pay-per-view had no issues. So did, did Dana go after the wrong people, and how bad of a look is it for ESPN and the UFC that on one of their biggest events, their service wasn't working? Please discuss. You know, we don't like to throw around the word irony. <laughs> Lest we overuse it. We don't yeah. like to throw it around too much, but uh, <laughs> when you spend the week acting like a swagger and tough guy who's going to put his balls on the table <laughs> and, and, and crush the common man for, uh, for trying to broadcast UFC pay-per-views illegally on the internet, and then lo and behold... The people try to log on to watch the pay-per-view the legal way around 8 p.m. here on the One True Time Zone. Shit don't work, Ben. That, as far as the co-main event podcast is concerned, is some ironic shit. That is some ironic shit. Now, I should say right off, my streaming experience worked totally fine. Did it? I couldn't get on to I missed the first two fights, man. Really? Yes. Yeah, see, that's... I I had, I mean, normally when people talk about how ESPN Plus would be really great if it worked, I totally get what they're saying. It 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 doesn't work the way it's supposed to all the time. Its search function is absolutely god awful, and I I understand the complaints people have with it most of the time. But this time, I was able to get right on there, order the pay per view, watched it. Didn't even have the usual problems of like the wildly varying picture quality. It looked good and played well for me the entire event, but. You know, I'm on the athletic Slack channel, and our guy Sean Alshadi is trying to get it. He missed like the the first two and a half at least like fights, I believe, where he was like, "Man, am I going to have to go try to find an illegal stream just so I can do my job?" Because I paid yeah. these people for the thing, and they're not giving it to me. 
to me, the real question is going to be like, what do you do about it if you're ESPN? Because how do you not give some people their damn money back after this? It, especially like Dana White really shrugged it off afterwards. Where he was like, oh, I heard it was just on the West Coast and uh, they got it sorted out and like in plenty of time for, you know, the co-main and main event. And it's like, well, what are you saying at that point? That these other fights that people paid to watch as part of the main card don't fucking matter? Because yeah. that kind of seems like that's what you're saying. If you're saying that like it doesn't matter that you paid $70, like an, a newly increased price for this thing, and the first event out the gates after this new price bump, it just doesn't work. People pay you the money, but then don't get the thing. How do you just shrug that off and be like, eh, it's fine. It worked for you eventually, didn't it? I mean, all you had to do was just sit there and be mad for like an hour and a half. Isn't he really saying that he can't afford to get mad at ESPN? Like, isn't that... Like, if someone else had done this, he probably would have been super mad. But the fact that the UFC gets most of its money from ESPN at this point probably prevents him from getting too steamed that uh, that the ESPN Plus broadcast stream was, was like was not operational for a while for a, a lot of people. I don't know whether or not it was just on the West Coast or not. It seemed incredibly widespread, just judging by my social media timelines. People were trying to get on and it, and it wasn't working out. Uh, I guess my bigger question is like, how does this happen on ESPN? Like you would think you're grouped together with, with Disney and Hulu. You would think you got a pretty, uh, big time server operation, whoever they go through to, to have that service you'd think would be, would be fairly reliable. One of the big time providers. And, and also, you know, what's going to happen. It's not like we, it's not like this was a surprise. It's not like we surprised through a Conor McGregor pay-per-view up on the internet, uh, on January 23rd at 8 p.m. in the Mountain Time Zone, like we knew this was coming and you knew how many people were going to want to watch it. And if it was really like, you know, a million, million and a half people, whatever that is, how is that enough to crash the ESPN stream? How is that enough to crash the ESPN plus Disney plus Hulu stream? Just just it doesn't seem like that should happen to me. Well, and you're right that not only did you know you were going to have an event at the time, you knew you were going to have a Conor McGregor event. Yeah, you, you turn around a and be bunch like, of people hey, were going to want to watch this shit. Yeah, like the whole reason you want to have this event, the whole reason you timed the price increase for this event was because you thought a lot of people were going to want to watch it. And especially if it's like a million and a half, that is not an unforeseeable number for a Conor McGregor event. Just looking at what your, your past pay-per-views with him done, have done, that ought to be right in line with your expectations. So that... Doesn't seem like that should be the issue. I just want to know, like, how, if you're ESPN, do you get away with not offering people at least a partial refund for that? I mean, I've, I've watched a movie through Amazon Prime before where afterwards they've sent me an email to be like, you know what? Like, you rented that movie and we determined that it was a suboptimal viewing experience for you because the picture was a little fuzzy. Some, so, so here, have a free one on us. And you're like, I, I thought it was fine. I thought it was mostly a fine viewing experience and you still, and then if you're ESPN and you're paying that you're asking for these premium prices for this thing and they don't even get to see like two fifths of the event. How do you not at least give them a little something? Cause otherwise it's just basically saying like, yeah, we kind of screwed you there, but what are you going to do? Like literally what are you going to do? Nothing. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. Are we calling bullshit on this streamer story yet? Because <laughs> after the event, so. because like the, the follow-up, the after-event follow-up where Dana White was like the streamer that we were targeting decided not to illegally stream the event and in fact put out a statement like directing people to where they could legally buy the pay-per-view. That's starting to – this is starting to sound like a sir story. Like, like when, a Donald when, Trump uh, – <laughs> yes. 
Okay. Sir, the, you know, when he's ch- telling a story about yeah. how a Green Beret or a construction worker or whatever comes up to him and is crying and saying, sir, sir, you've restored our faith in America. This streamer story, it's it's starting to remind me of a Donald Trump sir story a little bit here. Well, where, from what I can tell, he's like reading a statement off of his phone. Where where was this stuff? If you If it got put up on a website somewhere... What is the website? Why can't you tell us any of this stuff so that anybody can corroborate this story? Because so much of it from the very beginning when he was like, we're watching this guy, we're, te- we're listening to his phone conversations, we're, we're, we got this guy. Then he went up, he put up the statement and shut down his whole streaming service. Which, which one was it? Tell us. Like, I would think that you would want that evidence out there so you could show people like, aha, I really was doing this stuff. Otherwise... There's a part of me that wonders, wait a minute, did Dana White just tell somebody on his staff, like, hey, get me a streamer, get me one of these streamers? And they were like, uh, okay, like, he he won't be able to check. I'll just say, like, we got a streamer, Gary, Gary the streamer. We're watching him, boss. We got his, and then afterwards, like, Dana White's like, what happened with Gary the streamer? And you're like, uh, you know what, damnedest thing. Uh, he quit. He just quit. He just quit the streaming gig altogether, man, because he was so scared of you. And Dana White's like, yeah, all right, we'll just, uh. Send me the block text of his apology and statement so I can read it out at the press conference and nobody will ask to see what I'm reading or any information about where it came. Because otherwise, and then he says, we're going to do one of these every event. We're going to pick one. And I'm like, God, this, are you telling me that this is the first in a series of these? Because I don't know if I can take it, man. I don't know if I can take this being a recurring story where every week Dana White just declares victory over another nameless online streamer. I've already had my fill of it, to be honest with you. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Neil, who writes, I'll make this quick, gents. Otman Azatar, WTF. Now, this we talked about a little bit on the Power Hour on Friday, but uh, a 2-0 fighter in the in the UFC, the bulldozer, Otman Azatar, lightweight, uh, has apparently been cut from the, from the uh, organization for having a member of his team some kind of, of Ocean's Eleven-style conspiracy here to break the COVID-19 health and safety protocols over there in the Abu Dhabi bubble. Uh, and it just sounds like a wild story where they cut off their wristbands and gave them to a person outside the bubble, and that guy was able to kind of uh, breach the, the security protocols and then was shimmying between balconies at the host hotel or something over there in Abu Dhabi and were led to believe that it all had to do with some kind of mysterious bag that uh, we still don't know the contents of. This and the streamer plotline were the two weirdest, by far, pre-fight UFC plotlines we've had in a while, and they both occur leading up to the same pay-per-view, UFC 257, featuring Conor McGregor. This is just weird, man. This is wild stuff here. Were there any uh, mystifying high-dollar burglaries on Fight Island? Yeah, a diamond was stolen. Okay, yeah. Like, is there was there a platinum heist this weekend or something like that? Some kind of, like, cryptocurrency hack? Something. Yeah, the, someone had do, to do we run out of a... Someone had to run out of a Mayan temple with a big boulder rolling behind him. Did we count to make sure we still have all the tires on all the race cars? At the little race car track. How about... Is the, the mouth of the, the Cobra... Water slide, is it missing any teeth? Oh, dear God. Are the not rare the, jewels not the have King they been Cobra. taken out of the eyes of the King Cobra? No. Something. Don't, don't even say that. That'd be a crime against all of humanity. I I love how 
the whole situation is so weird and that you throw in the mysterious bag thing and then we get so fixated on just knowing what's in the bag. And you know what? We'll probably never know. And that really kills me. And yet at the same time, if we did know, we'd have to deal with the reality of it likely being disappointing. Instead, because especially if it's something like, well, I wanted to do some coke after the fight. That would be kind of disappointing if that ended up being the thing. And instead, Atman Azatir gets cut from the UFC and he can just let us all believe that he had some secret James Bond shit in there, ready to hack into the mainframe. And uh, that sounds cooler, at least. Next question this week comes to us from Shadrap, who just writes, The Low Blow Timer. Game changer? You know, I kind of agree with my man Casey Lydon on Twitter, who pointed out, I feel like the low blow ball shot counter, the graphic could be just a little fancier. You know? A little snazzier. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just, it's just basically the, the numbers in the corner, and you're left to figure out for yourself what it is, what, what exactly we're counting. And I feel like, you know, give us a fun graphic for the ball shot counter. Do you think there should be like a gif, like a, a foot to crotch gif that that lets us know exactly what we're dealing with? Or at least like a frowny face emoji. Okay. Yeah, that would you work. Know? Something like that. Now, I don't th- hate the idea of keeping a running counter, though, to let us know, especially to, to drive home the point of how few people take the time. See, that's what I was going to say. Can the, the fighter in the arena see the ball counter? Because that could encourage someone... To take the full five, yeah. if they're uh, if they don't know quite how much time they've spent trying to dislodge their testicles from like the inside of their body or the side of their their protective cup, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, especially because if I can see how you might be sitting there, maybe the crowd is getting restless. Your your opponent is doing the thing, walking around with his arms up in the air, and you're feeling like, okay, there's pressure for me to continue. And then if you look up at the counter and see 27 seconds have gone by, you're like, shit, man, I got some more time. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here and rest for a second. Like I I think that the idea seems like one, once you see it, you wonder why did it take us this long? Yeah, more facts and analytics. That's that's what we need. Ball timer. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from our old pal Darcy Ledrew, who writes once again: Stipe is doing the damn thing against Nganu, and I'm just wondering. Why the UFC, a promotion, seems, one, to suck at promoting, period, and two, promotes a week before events. We have Stipe, the most accomplished 265 champ against the most savage KO artist in that division, with the shadow of pound-for-pound great John Jones in the background. I know it's still a ways away, but still, get people excited now. In the malaise of a pandemic, give customers a date to circle. We just had Poirier versus McGregor 2, and it felt as if it were another monthly pay-per-view up to the day of. What does the proper thing? Um, I mean, they did do like a very slight, almost like surprise graphic when they put this up on the on the actual broadcast to show that uh, what is this UFC 259 is going to have double a double championship bill. We're going to have Volkanovski defending the title against Brian Ortega, the men's featherweight title, and then also headlined by this uh, heavyweight title fight rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. And when they put it on the broadcast, they do they did give us a little a little flip as if to say breaking news that Stipe and Ngannou was finalized. Yeah, I mean, Dana White had mentioned that in like a press conference a few days earlier, right? Like it wasn't like that that was a huge surprise. It was just like, okay, now we're going to, this is the official word from the UFC coming out and saying during a broadcast, okay, here you go. But I mean, this is, you know, we're talking end of March 
I don't, I don't, what are we saying that we want them to do differently here other than like using a big event that you know a lot of people are going to be watching and using that to make an announcement that, okay, we have this other big event planned for like a couple months from now. I'm sure we'll hear about it now and then in the time between then and now. But like, I don't know. It seems to me like this is a, a decent way of doing it. Yeah. I think that the big picture point here is, is, is appropriate that sometimes it's so easy to get lost in the sort of week to week wash of one UFC event after another that it's, that occasionally feels like we don't really have time to promote the big events until the week of, and maybe sometimes it would be nice to have two and three weeks, uh, of lead up where we're really focused on, for example, Steve Miocic versus Francis Ngannou or Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor, whatever it is. Uh, but the problem is that, that like the UFC is is so focused on sell, selling the next event whatever it is that like you know we go from from one week to the next and as soon as we get done with Conor McGregor Dustin Poirier we got to start thinking about Alistair Overeem versus uh Alexander Volkov and as soon as we're done with that we got to start thinking about Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns etc cetera, etc cetera. it's actually uh somewhat nice that in the wake of UFC 257 we have we have this weekend where there's not going to be an event yeah. Uh, and so we, we can like fully resonate and uh, kind of marinate in Dustin Poirier's victory over Conor McGregor. Um, and I agree that I think it would be nice if the if the UFC tried to spend a little bit more time propping up these big uh, high profile events and then and, you know, could definitely do that with Miocic versus Ngano. Now, exactly what the what wheels have to turn and what the, the mechanism of doing that would actually look like. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, you're right that you do have a weekend off this coming weekend, which is good. Maybe let the McGregor big fight hype settle a little bit. Let everybody kind of decompress. But then when you come back on Super Bowl weekend, right, with the Overeem versus Volkov fight night event, which always makes me remember, hey, remember when Super Bowl weekend used to be a big UFC pay-per-view event weekend? Yeah. And, they've, and they've done away with that model. Instead, it's just another fight weekend. But then from that point all the way through this UFC 260, Mio and Gano 2 event at the end of March, every single weekend has a UFC event. So that is not going to give you as much space to promote the Mio and Gano rematch once we actually get in this run of events. It's just going to be that same breakneck pace. Yeah. Uh, maybe last question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes lots to talk about this weekend, but I wanted to circle back to what seemed like big news in December. Dana White said late last year that there would be 60 ish fighters released from the roster and to expect some big names. Uh, he is known to be hashtag just saying stuff, but do you think this is a possibility or was it a promoter speak to angle fighters into less favorable contract contract talks? Please go on your insight and speculation is appreciated. Uh, this didn't really materialize, did it? Unless much of these cuts were so under the radar that we didn't really notice them. But otherwise, it seemed like the doom and gloom surrounding 60 UFC fighters, including some big names who were allegedly going to get released from the promotion, didn't really happen. Yeah, or at least hasn't finished happening yet. I mean, yeah. there were You heard about a couple where you're like, okay, you know, some small timers. But he did say some of the names were going to surprise people, some going to be big names. And after, you know, an initial warning about that that came with a couple people where it was like, okay, uh, Yubal Romero and people like that who maybe you're not as interested in re-signing. Uh, and I don't know, maybe some of it is just going to be uh, based on timing where you have some people who you know are coming up on the last fight of their contract and they're going to fight it out. And then we're not going to hear about it. Maybe he didn't mean exactly like 
December 31st. Right. We're bringing the axe down on a whole lot of people. Um, maybe it's just like more of a general first quarter 2021 thing. I, I would still keep an eye on it just to see. But I also wouldn't be surprised if when you're running this many events and struggling still to keep so many of them together, you find that maybe it's not the ideal time to be paring down the roster because you need some people who can pick up the phone and say yes. But you're also telling me maybe Jacare Souza shouldn't exhale and take his family out for celebratory dinner at, at Chuck E. Cheese like they made it through, like the, the pink slips might still be in the mail. I mean, Jacare was one where after he lost that one to Kevin Holland and considering his age, where he is in his career, the the kind of paycheck he's likely making just because of how long he's been in the UFC, that guy seemed like one where, okay, if you're talking about getting rid of some veterans, some surprising names, doesn't he seem like the the number one guy who would be on the chopping block? And yet if that yeah. was going to happen, why hasn't it happened already? Right. I guess we'll keep an eye out. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. are possessing of a human soul and you have a working heart in your chest pumping warm blood throughout your body you gotta feel good for Dustin Poirier here who comes out and gets the second round TKO victory over Conor McGregor in the main event of UFC 257 cuts a decent Dustin Poirier style promo on the mic when it's over and then walks out of the ring singing along to the big payback uh, by James Brown. And I guess before we talk for a few minutes about how the actual fight went, it is worth pointing out, despite the fact that I think we've both said it before on this show and others, that the story of Dustin Poirier's MMA career, or at least the majority of it, has indeed been one of being underestimated. And never feeling like you were going to get the the shine that you deserved or the recognition that was quite on par with your skill set. And frankly, it goes all the way back to the fight that first got him signed with the WEC back in 2010 when he went up to Montreal, Canada uh, to fight a hometown guy at ringside MMA. And, and the promoters just kind of realized or, or the promoters thought, like, we'll bring this kid up from Louisiana our guy will beat him. We'll get some shine off this. Uh, and Poirier ends up beating that guy, goes on into the WEC, has a couple fights there, then gets picked up by the UFC to come in as a short notice replacement to fight Josh Grisby back in the days when Josh Grisby was supposed to be a big time featherweight prospect. Uh, and they were going to kind of use Dustin Poirier to, to, as a stepping stone for Josh Grisby at UFC 125. Grisby ends up winning that fight, and you just kind of go on and on through the entire career of Justin or of Dustin Poirier here, including, uh, you know, this current run that he's been on, the UFC 236 fight against Max Holloway, uh, wins over Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis, Eddie Alvarez, and now into this Conor McGregor fight. 
where it kind of feels like, and if you were Dustin Poirier, you can understand how you would feel this way. Like maybe you were always being cast as the B side. Maybe you were always kind of the guy who was getting cast as the stepping stone when in fact you're beating most of these guys. Well, yeah. And you can definitely understand how he would feel that way in this one, just because of everything about how it was set up, how, right. how the discussions were going beforehand, all the, the, when you see the clip of Dana White sitting there talking to Khabib before the fight and he's saying, Hey, this fight is trending to be really big. You know, it would be even bigger is imagine you and Connor doing a rematch. He's not saying imagine you and the winner of this fight doing a rematch. You, right. he's Khabib's fought and beat both those guys. He's not even talking about the possibility that Dustin Poirier might win this fight. And all the UFC's hype job is on Conor McGregor, the return of Conor McGregor. You don't have to feel overlooked in this fight. You are being overlooked. It's right there in your face if you're Dustin Poirier. There's no way to ignore it. So for him to come in and to not only show like, hey, I am an actual guy in this division. You can't just throw me in here against the dude you want to see make all the money for you and go ahead and prematurely chalk it up as a W for you, but also to show some growth as a fighter and just physically and mentally his ability to take some of those shots, not get rattled, to stay calm in that fight with McGregor, and to have a really good game plan, honestly. Yeah. Like they, yeah. He and Mike Brown talking about it a little bit afterwards, saying how, you know, you know when Conor McGregor comes in there with that kind of boxing first approach he has, he's looking to land that that one-two. He's going to throw that right-hand jab out there and then try to follow it with that stinging left hand. And he looks good when he's throwing that punch. He was landing it early on, just had some real snap, some real quick pop in those hands. You know, he's, he's throwing that combination and then he's throwing like the left first with a, a right hand uppercut behind it. And that's, that's kind of how he thinks he's going to win that fight. He doesn't seem to think that he needs a whole lot else other than that. And he's going to be on the front foot advancing on you. And so right away, Poirier is chopping away at that lead leg, kicking that calf. And you could see Conor McGregor not really doing a whole lot about it for the most part. And for, yeah. for Poirier, the, the challenge is you got to, be in there long enough to make those calf kicks pay off. You can't get knocked out right away. You know, he gets that early takedown, wears on him a little bit. But it seems like you could see Poirier backing up off that clinch after a prolonged battle there in close in round one. And it looks like his arms are feeling a little heavy. He, he didn't quite have the same pop for a second there. But he didn't freak out. He keeps chopping away at that leg. And then by the second round, you can see, okay, that's taken its toll. And even more so, he did the, the exact same thing that uh, Pat Wyman was talking to me about when I did the uh, talk with about like kind of the technical analysis analysis of how they've grown is to stay in there and even after McGregor lands that left hand that he wants he's just looking to land that one two and be there and to, to counter him right after he lands it which is a thing that he doesn't seem to expect too much because he, he expects that that left hand has so much power that once he lands it, he doesn't have to worry about anything coming back right afterwards. Poirier put all that stuff together really well and just showed a lot of maturity, I think, as a fighter. And to come out of that afterwards, I, 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 it's such a feel-good moment to see the guy being like, look, I've been just doing this. I haven't been out there raising water safety awareness. I haven't been out on a yacht. I haven't been, I'm not doing this between vacations. I am just living this life. And to see that it actually makes a difference. And for a guy who's Especially the position he's in right now. He's really in the lightweight driver's seat, man. Khabib, it doesn't sound like he's coming back at all. Conor McGregor seems like, okay, he's been knocked kind of back to the middle of the pack if he's going to want to stay and continue to be about that life. If you want to talk about what to do with a vacant lightweight title right now, it kind of seems like all roads got to run through Dustin Poirier. 
Yeah. In retrospect, we probably should have paid more attention to the possibility of the calf kick leading up to this fight, just knowing that Dustin Poirier comes out of American Top Team, one of the camps that has really prioritized the calf kick, one of the camps that has been uh, chiefly responsible for the calf kick kind of becoming a popular strike in MMA, uh, and knowing that this was going to be a lefty-on-lefty matchup, which gives Dustin Poirier the opportunity to throw that low kick without... uh, without leaving his head right right on the center line to to get the counter left hand from Conor McGregor and to see Dustin Poirier utilize that calf kick like the first guy really who's who's had any success kicking the leg of Conor McGregor uh was really a breakthrough moment and nice to see and frankly the guy did everything he needed to do to win this fight like he landed the calf kick he had a takedown he put McGregor on the fence he he wore on him he accepted the shots and then when the time came and he and he landed the strike that hurt Conor McGregor. He let the old Dustin Poirier come out and started swanging and banging. And the next thing you know, you got the second round TKO. One of the things I really like about Dustin Poirier, you know, aside from the fact that he just seems like a good dude, is that he understands the moment. Like he seems whenever he's in one of these fights, he really seems to understand the moment, and he seems to know what it means to him. Uh, and in this case, you know, walking out to James Brown's the big payback and kind of putting the uh, the paid in full Dustin Poirier tagline on this event lets you know that that he knew what this was about. And I really liked in the post fight interview how Dustin Poirier kind of talked himself into deciding he was the champion, like at the very end of his post fight interview where he was like, you know what, I am the champion. And I was sitting at home thinking, goddamn right, dude. Like, why not? If Habib is going to be retired and there's not really going to be a reigning UFC lightweight champion, if you're Dustin Poirier and you're eight and one over the last, what, three and a half years and your only loss is to Habib and you just beat Conor McGregor, go ahead, Dustin, declare yourself the champion. I couldn't be more into that. And frankly, I hope he keeps it up. I hope he keeps talking about how he's the champion. And if Chucky Olives or uh, or Dan Hooker or anybody else, I'm sorry, uh, Michael Chandler or anybody else, Wants, wants a shot at the title, they, it's got to go through Lafayette because Dustin Poirier has declared himself the champion. Yeah, well, and I also like what he was saying when asked about fighting Michael Chandler for next and possibly for a vacant title. And he kind of made the point like, okay, Michael Chandler, he just came in from Bellator and he beat Dan Hooker, who, who I just beat. So I don't know about that one. But then when he talks about Charles Oliveira, he's like, okay, I've been watching that dude for a long time in two different weight classes. And he's been here for a while and fighting the tough guys for a while. And I respect that. And that is a fight that would make sense to me. And he's talking about it and you're going like, all right, like he's not just talking about here's what I think would be the biggest payday or the bring the most attention. He, there's some kind of logic at work there. And I go, you know what? You kind of talked me into it. Dustin Poirier versus Chucky Olives for a vacant UFC lightweight title would make a whole lot of damn sense right now. It would. It's not going to get you the buy rate that you were hoping for with one of these other matchups. But, uh, but then, I mean, do you think it would be hugely different if he fought Michael Chandler? I don't think so. Like, I, no, I think, but I mean, know, what they were what they were clearly hoping for was a Habib Nurmagomedov return against Conor McGregor. So it's not going to get you that kind of number. But uh, maybe that's the maybe that's where we are in this lightweight division and and the uh, the reality of promoting fights where uh, you better be ready for either guy to win, man. Even if the guy you really want to win comes in as a three-to-one favorite, he can still fuck around and lose these things. And you kind of got to be able to roll with whatever happens, which frankly was uh, one of the advantages of old-school UFC-style matchmaking, 
was that they sort of their calling card was to put on the best fights and to have two high level competitors out there that no matter who won, they could roll with it. And uh, that's why it's been so weird over these last several years to see the company focus so much on Conor McGregor to put all its eggs in the basket of not only Conor McGregor winning this fight, but to try to convince Habib Nurmagomedov uh, the, to come out of retirement depended on a lot of things happening that just didn't happen over the weekend. And it's another reminder to me that like, man, you should have been promoting Dustin Poirier. You should have been promoting Dustin Poirier for years because he is everything that you tell us over and over again that you want in an MMA fighter. He's an action fighter. Uh, he's a hard nosed fighter. He's a good interview. He is a likable person and he wins almost all the fights. He's, that's yeah. what he's, but you've been telling us for years, that's what you want in a quote unquote partner. And here's this guy. And it's just like, you, you, you don't give him the time of day until he proves over and over again that he wins these fights. Well, at least this did seem like the event where Dana White finally accepted the breakup with Khabib Nurmagomedov. Yes. You got, I mean, you got to, or, or you're just going to, it's going to start looking a little too thirsty on the UFC's end of things. If you, if you're not at this point willing to let Habib go make his mom happy and, and teach combat Sambo or, you know, become an assistant coach at AKA, whatever it is he wants to do. Promote cell phone plans and, uh, regional MMA events. It seems there you go. All right, let's do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, I was impressed by Juliana Pena coming back and finding a way to beat Sarah McMahon on the UFC 257 prelims. Comes back, wins the submission uh, victory after kind of getting dominated in the first round. Uh, good win for her against a, still a tough opponent and Sarah McMahon. Then she gets on the mic, though. I got to say, I was not expecting Juliana Pena to beat 40-year-old Sarah McMahon and then call for a fight with Amanda Nunes, who she then accuses of ducking her. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? There's a lot of people out there who you can accuse of ducking. Amanda Nunes, a two-division champion, the the rare two-division champion who will actually fight and defend belts in both divisions, fighting anybody you got, fighting to the point, if you're going to criticize the opponents that she's taken on now, it's because she has beat the shit out of everybody else, and there is nobody else left. So they're just scraping down there, way down at the bottom of the barrel to try to find somebody for her to fight anymore. I don't know if you can really criticize her. I would love to have seen the look on Amanda Nunes' face when she heard that Juliana Pena was accusing her of ducking her. Because I think the look on her face might have been something along the lines of, who? You fucking kidding me? You're going to accuse this champion of ducking people? I don't think so. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, you'll remember that earlier I said you needed to take a curated look through the UFC's upcoming schedule. Turns out the UFC itself did the same thing during the UFC 257 broadcast when they were highlighting uh, upcoming matchups that we're going to want to mark on our calendar to make sure that we tune in. Because during that segment, they went ahead and skipped right over March 20th's UFC Fight Night 188, headlined by Derek Brunson and, oh yeah, Kevin Holland, the guy who uh, Dana White went on ESPN and and singled out as the only young fighter he could mention as a person we should be watching out for. UFC is just going to skip that one, not mention it at all on the broadcast because we got to get to Stipe versus Francis Ngannou. Thing I like most about it, Derek Brunson. He's going to let you hear about that. He's going to get on Twitter Twitter, and be like, oh, uh, you're just going to overlook my main event, huh, UFC? Okay, I see how it is. Are you fucking kidding me? 
Let's give these guys a little bit of respect here, man. Put a little shine on Derek Brunson versus Kevin Holland. Just gonna skip over it. You fucking kidding me? All right, that's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, that yacht is going to be leaving Fight Island with its flags at half-mast, or whatever it is they do on big-ass boats to convey a sense of sorrow. Because Conor McGregor, while he rolled up in there in style, pulled up to the goddamn arena in a Rolls Royce after sailing to Fight Island on a yacht, then goes in here, another one of these high-profile fights, Conor McGregor is back for the first time in a year, Gets a lot of attention. A lot of the the casuals out there outside the MMA bubble. A lot of people tuning in to see this Conor McGregor guy again. They've heard so much of. And then he goes out there. Looks good getting off the bus or the yacht. Looks good in the first round. And then gets absolutely thumped on in the second. Pulled away without really any question about it. And now it seems we got some, some choices to make if yeah. you're Conor McGregor. Because here he is. He's at this point in his time as an MMA fighter where he has really successfully managed to move just from one money fight to the next. Just constantly going from whatever he is doing like to, to the next step being bigger than the last one. Even when he is losing fights. Like he, he lost that fight to Nate Diaz. The rematch was even bigger and he won it. You know, he loses a, a fight to Khabib. He can still turn around. You know, he beats Donald Cerrone and then he's back here in this, this Dustin Poirier fight doing really good draws and everything. He can, he has kind of a master at that. And yet right now, it's hard to picture him being like, all right, you know what? I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone. I'm going to be in the gym all the time. I'm going to live the life of a full-time MMA fighter again. And I'm going to work my way back up to a UFC title fight. And it wouldn't even take that much. He, If he went and he won one more fight, you know the UFC would use that and be like, okay, this guy's he's earned the right to fight for a title again. If he beat Nate Diaz in a trilogy fight or something, if he went out there and beat somebody like Justin Gates, you know that would be just enough for the UFC to throw him back in there. And yet... Does he really want to be about that life? Or would it be better to go one-off boxing match with Manny Pacquiao and try to make some money? Maybe reconsider this offer that came in the form of a giant check from one of those Paul brother dudes. What do you think Conor McGregor is feeling right now at, at what seems like a career crossroads? Well, I think you're right to say that from a marketing standpoint, it has been a tremendous success for Conor McGregor to continue to be able to market himself as as a top MMA fighter, particularly over the last several years where he's really just three and three in his last half dozen performances in the octagon. And it's hard to imagine him changing all the things that would be necessary to change in order to become more than that. Uh and the, I think the reasons that we've gotten to this point with Conor McGregor are, are complicated, but somewhat interconnected. Like you heard him mention the inactivity in his post-fight interview. And I think that there's something to that. You know, we talked last week about how it was probably part of the secret to Conor McGregor's success that he has been somewhat scarce in the MMA landscape, that he only fights once or twice a year. But I do believe that it's incredibly difficult uh, 
to keep that kind of schedule and to expect yourself to go in and compete at the absolute highest level of this weight class and this sport, where meanwhile, Dustin Poirier has been out here fighting these hitters, man. Dustin Poirier has been living this life, as he said, every every day. And so I, I do believe that it's hard for Conor McGregor to kind of flip a switch and come in and be on and expect to have a five-round fight against a, an opponent like that. Uh, another thing that I think is that like we shouldn't overlook that like when you're fighting at the highest level of MMA, you can't really afford to be stagnant, man. You can't afford to remain the same fighter over a number of years because everybody else like Dustin Poirier is constantly getting better. And the truth is that Conor McGregor like has had the biggest target on his back in the sport. He's been the most scrutinized, most analyzed fighter, maybe in the history of MMA. And there's way, way too many smart people in this sport who are constantly watching film, constantly picking you, picking you apart, constantly game planning for you. And if everybody else is constantly getting better and constantly training and constantly having these big fights, uh, it's hard to go in there and like be the Conor McGregor that, that we expect him to be like, I, I, and I don't, like you said, I don't necessarily know that I can see him making the the commitment and the lifestyle changes necessary to like to once again be a UFC champion despite the fact that we all know that the UFC is going to take every opportunity to put to put him out there. Yeah, and I guess the other question is does he care about that? Is that at all an important thing to him or is he just looking for what can I do next? What's the one fight I can do next to make a whole bunch of money? Yeah. Is he looking to craft a long-term plan here or is he just thinking, you know what, like, I'm probably not going to do too many more of these either way it goes. So what would be the best thing I could do with the next nine months of my life to end up with another big payday? And honestly, I wouldn't blame the guy if that's the way he decides to go. Because right. it's tough to be in there grinding in that gym, getting better the way you need to, and to show up in there really ready to fight when you already have a ton of money and you don't really need it. Yeah. You know, I, I can totally understand why a guy might look at that and be like, you know what? I'll box some YouTube guy. That seems like an easier amount of work. And if what you're in it is for just the fame and the money, you can get it that way. Like you, it, you might make more money that way, honestly, than if you turn around and you fought Nate Diaz or, or somebody else, you know, some other just like non-title UFC fight. Yeah. So, it's interesting because Conor McGregor does talk a lot about legacy and he talks a lot as though he wants to be a full-time kind of everyday UFC fighter. He will occasionally make nods to that. You know, we saw him come out in early 2020 and say he was going to have that quote-unquote season. Uh, and he's kind of been talking the same way around this Dustin Poirier fight that he wanted to be more active and, and have more fights. And immediately following the loss, he's already talking about how he wants to have a trilogy fight with Nate Diaz and a trilogy fight with Dustin Poirier. And so Connor is this weird mix of like getting his money, which to his credit, he should be. He's he's the most successful fighter, negotiator, earner in UFC history. And you got to give him his credit for that. But he does also seem like a guy who cares deeply about his legacy and about his place in the sport. And it's just going to be a matter of how those two can, how those two agendas can mesh and whether or not he really wants to make the sacrifices necessary to be an everyday upper echelon UFC fighter. And it's interesting when you look at the big draws in the history of the UFC, Brock Lesnar, Ronda Rousey, 
Conor McGregor, despite the fact that the three of them are are obviously extremely different kinds of athletes, the three of them kind of op- opted for similar training philosophies in that because they have the money and maybe because they have the personalities that, that require this, they have kind of uh, turned their back on like what, how most people train. Like a training in MMA is, is usually very collaborative and in many cases very nomadic. Like a guy like Dustin Poirier, who is from Louisiana, basically moves to Florida when he needs to train for a fight because he trains at American Top Team because that's the be- what he feels like is the best team for him. Like Conor McGregor has been far more insular and far more loyal, frankly, to uh, the straight blast gym guys in Dublin, John Kavanaugh, Owen Roddy, those guys, you still see him in his corner even for this fight. And you wonder a little bit if everybody else is getting better and Conor McGregor is kind of stagnant and he's it's it feels like people have figured him out a little bit at this point. Would he be well served to go somewhere else and get in a room with some smart people who haven't gotten there, gotten that chance to mold him yet? Uh, because, you know, you saw the same approach from Brock Lesnar, kind of stayed home and trained in Minnesota. You saw the same approach from Ronda Rousey, stayed home and trained in, in California. And now you see it from Conor McGregor, despite the fact that he's all over the world, kind of staying loyal to his original crew. And those are all people who seem to kind of get figured out and had relatively comparatively short stays at the top of the sport. And it seems like if Conor McGregor wants longevity, if he cares about legacy, maybe a different approach would be necessary. And again, that just doesn't necessarily seem like the kind of thing he's going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think really what you're talking about is growth. Like, are you in a growth mindset and putting yourself in growth situations? You know, your man, Greg Jackson will tell you that there is no growth without suffering. Are you willing to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation to go somewhere else? I don't even know if he needs to go and to find a a different team or something, but he is very much a, kind of the same fighter as he's always been. And you saw yeah. it in this fight. I mean, he's got some some new little things, you know, like him being able to really kind of sting people with a shoulder check in the clinch. That's a nice thing that he has added. That's, a, yeah. you know, his, his defensive wrestling has definitely gotten better a little bit. But in terms of the, the big picture stuff, he's still that guy who's just going out there looking to land pretty much the same stuff he always does. And if you can deal with that power early on, if you can get through a first round with him where he does land that stuff on you and it doesn't completely overwhelm you, then he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of answers for that. We also, we haven't really seen too many situations in which somebody has turned the tide on him and he has weathered that and then come back. It seems like once he is, when he's allowed to lead, when he's allowed to dictate pace and range and all that stuff, he can be really dangerous. But then once somebody else stings him back and kind of turns him, turns him around, especially gets him with his back to the fence, like, like Poirier got him there after he, he landed that right hook and kind of pivoted off. And that was basically it. He couldn't recover from that. And it's like, that's the stuff that you've got to be adding to the game if you were going to be in this going forward because at this point people have seen a lot of you especially they're going to be watching this Dustin Poirier fight people are going to feel like they kind of have a book on you going forward now not everybody is going to be able to execute it as well as Dustin Poirier but they're going to have a lot of good ideas about how to deal with your stuff now and if you don't have different stuff that you can bring into those future fights then it's going to be tough man it's it's going to be tough to to work your way back there and then stay there and it just makes me wonder, does he care? Does he really want that? Is that the yeah. goal at this point? Because I could honestly, like, 
I know we it's easy for a lot of us to sit here and talk about legacy and, oh, you should want this. You should want to go out there and prove this stuff to us. But honestly, I wouldn't blame him if he felt like I don't, I don't need, I won titles in two UFC divisions and I was the biggest star in the history of the sport. I don't have anything else that I need to prove to you people. I'm just looking for what makes the most sense to me. I would totally get that and I, I wouldn't judge him at all negatively for that. But you do, I think at this point, kind of have to make up your mind which one you're going to do. And I, we've said it before, like after those Floyd Mayweather fights, after the Khabib fight, there's got to be a lot of people out there who hear about Conor McGregor as this sort of cultural phenomenon, and it brings them in. They don't normally watch this stuff. They they don't watch any other MMA fighters, but Conor McGregor's fighting, you know, your friend's getting it. People are getting it at a bar. It's a big thing. You're going to watch it. And then you watch it, and you go, at some point, those people are going to ask themselves, does this guy ever win? Right. Because all these you, big ones you, that you get me in for, Floyd Mayweather, Khabib, not this Dustin Poirier thing, every time I watch this guy, he loses. Yeah. Like, if you found out about Connor leading up to the Floyd fight, you've seen him lose to Floyd Mayweather, lose to Herbert, Her, uh, Habib Nurmagomedov, beat like an aging Cowboy Cerrone, and then lose to Dustin Poirier. So I agree. And like, if the question is, what does Connor McGregor care, care about? Like, if the only thing that he cares about is making more money, it feels to me like he still needs a W, man, because I have a hard time believing that even a boxing match against Manny Pacquiao would be viable right now unless Conor McGregor can can get himself another win. And, you know, the UFC, just because of 20 years of expectations and how we view UFC matchmaking, they can't really get the guy a tune-up fight. That's not really a thing that they do. So, like, it's either going to be, if he's going to fight in the UFC, it's either going to be a trilogy with Diaz, a trilogy with Poirier, which would make me mad, uh, or maybe somebody like Justin Gaethje. But like, they're, they're, those are really kind of the only options I see for Connor right now, unless, as you said, he wants to go fight a YouTube guy and the UFC will let him. Other than that, like, I think it's one of those three guys and he desperately needs a win because despite the fact that I continually underestimate people's willingness to pay for these attractions, even after the truth seems to have come out about them. Uh, I feel like, as you said, people have seen him lose a lot of fights. He needs to re- rehabilitate that image a little bit if he's going to continue being Conor McGregor. Yeah. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying. But I, I agree that the a Dustin Poirier trilogy right now would make me mad. It would just there seem would be, like, oh, we're just going to keep doing no, it until Conor wins, right. huh? Yeah, there would be no easier way to signal that the wrong guy won that fight, right? Than just to run it back. The Nate Diaz trilogy would make sense because it's not like Nate Diaz is doing much these days anyway. So it's you, you're not holding up anything important. The rest of the lightweight division can move on. We can crown a, a, a vacant a champion for the vacant title. We can all sort out the serious business there, and then we can see if down the road Conor McGregor is going to be back in the picture. Uh, I think he probably still thinks he can pull off that Manny Pacquiao boxing match. They got the same management. I think they still probably like that idea for a lot of reasons. But if it turns out that he's going to box Jerry Paul or whoever at the International Space Station, that wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, if you had Bruce Buffer 
mentioning the fact that Michael Chandler is the former Bellator lightweight champion on your UFC bingo card for Saturday night. You are a better person than I because I did not see that coming. But the UFC does, in fact, name check Michael Chandler as the formal, former Bellator champion. And then Michael Chandler went out there and had a championship performance against Dan Hooker, blasting him uh, with what was it, overhand left, left hook that put Dan Hooker down on the uh, on the mat and then finishes up with strikes in two minutes and 30 seconds. Dana White says afterward, it's maybe the most impressive UFC debut he's ever seen. I think your guy Anderson Silva might have something to say about that, but uh, this is a good one from Michael Chandler and frankly is exactly the version of Michael Chandler that I expected to see in the octagon. And the question now is, how does he fit in with this changing lightweight division if Abib Nurmagomedov really is gone? What do you do with him? What do you do with Poirier? What do you do with McGregor? And what do you do with Dan Hooker, who left his 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 gloves in the octagon? Uh, and I don't know. Have we heard from a from Dan Hooker? Have we have we got an update about about it, if he's calling it quits? Because traditionally that would be a sign that uh, that you were going to retire. But uh, Michael Chandler announces himself with authority in the 155 pound division here in the UFC. I'm surprised to say hear you say that this is exactly the version of Michael Chandler you expected. Because I feel like we talked a little bit beforehand about maybe that Michael Chandler, we didn't know if he was going to win this fight, that this might be a tough one for him, and that uh, if that maybe he had made the transition too late. I, I was surprised to see him go out there and make such quick work of Dan Hooker. And I think part of it, I, w- I was surprised to see Dan Hooker make so much of his early strategy just avoidance. Of Michael yeah. Chandler, just circling around the the perimeter of the cage, and you could see Chandler at a couple points, kind of resetting himself to be like, okay, let's not chase this guy, let's not get too worked up. But also, if the guy is just going to circle away that much, like then he's circling in the same direction most of the time. You can kind of get him running into something, and you don't have to worry about him countering back that much because he's so worked on just so focused on just staying away from you. And it was a you know, a, a good kind of mid, like early on read by Michael Chandler to, he, he fires to the body a couple times just to get Dan Hooker thinking about that and then follows it with that left hand. And you see Michael Chandler, he does still have that, that explosive power. The guy's an athlete. The guy can go out there, you know, he, he's got a lot of experience. We wonder a little bit if he maybe has a little bit too many miles on him as well. But he went out there and really put it on Dan Hooker. And that, that's got to feel good in that moment because you know, everybody, you're in a big, on the, on a big event, uh, a big stage, and everybody is looking to make a snap judgment about you based on this one fight. Well, really easy for that pressure to over to overwhelm some people, and it didn't happen to Michael Chandler. Yeah, I don't know that anybody expected Michael Chandler to win this fight in two minutes and thirty seconds. Like we just saw Dan Hooker go five rounds with Dustin Poirier. Uh, he's obviously a durable guy and a, and a tough guy. But look, man, if if you didn't think Michael Chandler had the stuff to be an elite fighter in the UFC and be a member of this group that is right up there circling a title shot. Like, I don't necessarily know if you've been paying attention to what he's been doing over there in Bellator, because he's only lost two fights in the last five years. Uh, and, and he has always been a ridiculous athlete, and he has always been like a really, really high-level MMA fighter. The matchup with Dan Hooker was a tough one and was classic UFC matchmaking to bring in this high-profile, high-priced free agent from another company and immediately serve him up a dangerous matchup and potentially a difficult matchup of styles because uh, you see him out there and it looks like Bruce Lee fighting Kareem Abdul-Jabbar a little bit uh, in Game of Death. Dan Hooker is just towering over 
Michael Chandler. And the worry is that Michael Chandler is going to run into one of those standing counter knees that Dan Hooker throws uh, up at about chin chin level on Michael Chandler. Uh, so it was it was a super impressive performance by Michael Chandler. It was a little bit of a weird performance by Dan Hooker. But man, like if you've been watching Michael Chandler over the years, you knew that he had the talent and the skills to be this guy in the UFC. Uh, and like, quite frankly, I wouldn't even be, oh, excuse me, quite Franklin. I wouldn't even be, uh, that upset if they, if you said Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler were going to fight for the vacant title, like Charles Oliveira would probably have, have a quibble. He would probably have something to say about it. But, uh, you know, I think Michael Chandler is at that level. He's a guy that you could put in there in a championship fight in his second UFC appearance. And, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't make me too upset to be honest with you. Yeah, but I think right now, if you look, especially if we're in a real, truly post-Khabib lightweight era, and you look around at who you have right now, where you got guys like Michael Chandler, you got Chucky Olives, you got Dustin Poirier, you got Justin Gaethje, you got all those kind of people hanging around, it's almost impossible to screw it up. Yeah. You can make almost any combination of those fights and... I'll be happy. I'll feel like we're we're doing something worthwhile. There'll be fun fights to watch and they'll all be legit as a way to figure out a lightweight champion. I mean, again, I don't want to be the guy who has to keep shouting tournament over and over again, uh, even if it's just some kind of four-man Grand Prix kind of fun. But whatever. Like You just start mixing those guys up depending on who wants to go with who and who, where who's available when. I don't know. I, I don't see any way for it to go wrong for you. No, I agree with you. If ever there has been a time to put on a uh, a four-man tournament for the vacant lightweight title, now would be the time to do it. Uh because you've got a you've got the uh the athletes to do it. You even got Tony Ferguson out here kind of chirping about how Dustin Poirier hasn't fought him yet. Oh, Tony. Tony, Tony, but, Tony. But uh uh it doesn't I mean that's just again, like one of those things it's hard to imagine the UFC actually doing. Uh, and I, so the, the question, I guess the real, the real utility question is whether or not Dustin Poirier will fight Charles Oliveira or maybe, uh, Michael Chandler for the title. Probably Oliveira has the inside track, but at the same time, I don't think you could really argue with Michael Chandler being in there unless you just totally discount his previous career with Bellator, which I know a lot of people will do, but, uh, that's those, that's, those seem like the fights to make. If uh, if you're not going to book the McGregor Poirier immediate rematch, which again would make me angry, don't make us angry. You don't do like it us when we're angry. We've been we've been talking about how happy we are this whole time. <laughs> don't make us mad now. Don't do it. You ready for just saying stuff? Yeah, let's do just saying stuff, and then we can get out of here for this week. What's your just saying stuff, Ben? Well, you mentioned Michael Chandler's previous career with Bellator, and so I guess this week. I'm just saying, could we admit that that Pitbull guy is pretty good? Can we maybe, in retrospect, just back up a little bit, get rid of our or whatever UFC biases we may be bringing into this and just look at the, the MMA landscape as a whole and admit the guy who last beat Michael Chandler via a first-round TKO in May 2019, the homie Patricio Pitbull Friere, that maybe that guy is actually a pretty awesome fucking fighter. And that if you were to bring him over into the UFC, either in the featherweight or the lightweight division, he'd probably do pretty well too. I'm just saying. Because it seems like maybe the stuff like this gives us a good situation to compare and contrast and admit that that guy is really, really good. 
Just yeah, that. and you knew Pitbull wasn't going to uh, let this victory go without hopping on the Twitter machine and being like, I see what you did, son. Your father is very proud of you. <laughs> Just because he will not let it go. He will not let it go with Michael Chandler. Well, Ben, I'm just saying, did you see this? Uh, these comments from Floyd Mayweather in the aftermath of, of UFC 257 uh, goes on, I believe it was his in- Instagram, uh, to say, uh, I seen this post and my take on it is that the world knows con artist McLoser can oh, okay. steal everything from me and be loved, but I'm hated. That just lets you know that racism still exists. Just know that bomb will never be me or be on my level. I'm just built different. My mindset is on another planet. My skills are second to none. I'm a natural born winner. And yes, I talk a lot of trash, but every time I back it up, uh, that is why they hate. Now, obviously there's a lot of, uh, racism in combat sports and always has been, and there probably always will be. And, and I fully support and, uh, agree with Floyd Mayweather when he, when he points that out, but con artist McLoser and just know that bomb will never be on my level. Is he doing the Conor McGregor thing where he acts like we don't know that those guys fought (laughs) because if you think, that Conor McGregor is a con artist and a loser and is not on your level. You helped make him what he is, man. We all remember when you guys did that. You put him on your level. You made him, in in many respects, the enormous crossover mainstream sports star that he is. Like you can't just now be like, this guy's a con artist. Like you 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 fought him. You when you didn't have to, and everybody knows it was your idea. I'm just saying, con artist McLoser. There might be some other reasons why some people dislike Floyd Mayweather, and they might have to do directly with his own actions, especially towards women. Yeah, Conor McGregor allegedly has those same or similar issues, but yeah, yeah. Uh, his mindset is on another planet. Did did he specify which planet? Mars. He's sitting up there on Mars like Dr. Manhattan. Okay. I think that's what he's talking about. Well, yeah. I'm sure that that you think Floyd Mayweather and you think, yeah, he's definitely going for a Watchmen reference. (laughs) He's read the graphic novel. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back Wednesday for the live chat over on the Patreon page, the movie club on Thursday, and then, of course, the co-main event podcast, Patreon Power Hour on Friday. We'd love it if you would join us over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. But thanks for listening to us here, as always. But as for now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Do you think we can get one of our artist friends to make a mock-up of like a balloon for Floyd Mayweather sitting on Mars thinking about how he's tired of these earthlings and their problems? Yeah, with uh, probably Bernie Sanders sitting in the background. <laughs> okay, why not? I mean, we've got to add him to everything, right? see people are uh, making memes where Conor McGregor is, is lying in a bed and Bernie Sanders is sitting in this in the bedroom with him. It's a cruel world out there, man. Well, that's These just internet, internet memesters. When memes collide. That's what Mixing me- meme-diums. Mixed meme-diums. Okay, I, that almost works. You heard me. Not quite.